Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is hiring an assistant director of multimedia content. So this position will be on the communications and marketing team, and you'll help to produce high-impact video and photography that connects with a diverse audience of prospective students, community members, and alumni. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on this listing. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much again for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and for this week's guest, I'm talking with Angela Baines. Angela is an assistant professor at OCAD University in Toronto, Ontario, a part-time instructor at the British Columbia Institute of Technology, and strategic director at Transform EXP. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, thanks for having me, Maurice. Well, my name is Angela Baines, and I'm an educator. I'm a businesswoman. I'm also a wife and mother. I live in Vancouver, Canada. I am the strategic director of Transform EXP, which is a design agency here in Vancouver. I'm also the graduate program director for Strategic Foresight and Innovation Program, which is a master's program at OCAD University in Toronto. And also at that university, I'm also a professor in decolonizing advertising. I've spent 25 years or over 25 years in the design industry, and I've worked for or should I say, I worked on some social change projects as well as a lot of commercial projects as well. I've been teaching for just over 12 years and I'm really happy to be here. Wow, that's impressive. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) First off, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you and everyone listening. How are you feeling about 2021? 2021, well, I think I'm probably feeling like everyone else for 2021 in that I'm hoping um, we'll get to s- get back to some sort of normality. I know we have a vaccine right now for the for COVID, but we also know that we need to get 70% of any country's population to, to be taking that vaccine before we can actually say, okay, it's safe for us to to get back to normal. So I'm I'm feeling hopeful, and and I think I think we can't do anything else except to feel hopeful. Otherwise, things will be looking very gloomy for us. So we, we live in hope. That's what, that's all I can say on that one. I like that. <laughs> if you could, you know, kind of give one word to sum up last year, and I don't want to dwell too much on how 2020 has been, but if you could give up a word to sum up how last year was, what would that word be? I think that word would be, I think, reflective. Because I think what COVID-19 sort of did was sort of slowed everybody down. And most people went into that sort of lockdown phase. 
and people were able to then sort of reflect on their life and maybe the pace of their life and the things that they were doing, reflecting on maybe the jobs that they were doing that, and maybe those jobs that they lost. But being able to think about that was in terms of, is this what I actually wanted to do? And maybe it's given people some, actually some opportunities as well, just to rethink and reflect. Let's talk about Transform EXP. Uh, You're the strategic director there. How has business kind of been since the pandemic started? For us, it's been it's been slow in that, you know, when the pandemic first started, everyone basically sort of retreated, which isn't a bad thing because obviously we needed to, everyone needed to, to stay safe. But we're also a company right now that we're actually pacing ourselves in terms of the sort of projects that we want to work on. We've got to the point now where we can actually pick and choose the companies that we work with, the projects that we want to work with. And so instead of doing numerous projects a year, we can, you know, maybe pick and choose to do maybe five large projects for that year. So that's that's a good position to be in. Yeah, I have to say that's that is really good, especially at a time when businesses are suffering because of lockdowns and things like that. You've managed to kind of find a way to to weather that storm. Yeah, and and I think a lot of that also is just in in terms of my career where that's going as well. So apart from being the strategic director of Transform EXP, I'm also teaching as well. So I'm also the graduate program director and a professor at OCAD University, which is the Ontario College of Art and Design University in Toronto. So I'm also doing that as well. So it's sort of balancing those two things. What's kind of a regular day like for you now at the agency? A lot of problem solving. I don't get into the design part of it as much as I used to. But definitely in terms of looking at the strategies that we use for our clients or the strategies that we're going to develop for ourselves as a business. And we're actually moving into a new phase and thinking about, well, what's next for us as a, as a company. And I think, so, you know, sometimes things happen and you have to take note of those, almost like you have to discern what is happening in my life and, and what does this actually mean? And I think the fact that we started to slow down and pick and choose our projects now that we're moving into 2021, we're sort of reflecting back and thinking, okay, is it time for us to maybe rethink what we do as a company? So we're, we're, at, we're at that stage right now where we're thinking about what we do and, you know, do we want to continue doing this? Do we want to maybe expand the business in some way and, and go into something that's maybe a little bit different, maybe something out of left field? So I'm, I'm always looking perhaps what's new and, and what's out there and maybe what should we be tapping into? So that's that's kind of where we are at the moment. Are you finding that, I guess, the market has changed now in any any sort of way over this past year? I think it did, but I think it's, it sort of reflects who we are as, as human beings. First, we're, we're startled, as we were, right, with the, with the pandemic. And then we sort of go, mm, okay, well, that, okay, is that the way it's behaving? Okay, well, maybe we can sort of reshape the way we do things. And we, we find workarounds. And it's like my mom used to say. I remember sometimes we would we'd be doing our homework or something and would say, oh, but it's too hard. And she would say, look, life is hard, right? We're human beings. If we gave up, you know, all those years ago, we wouldn't be where we are today. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's hard, but we get on with it. We find a way around it. Nice, nice. When I was first reaching out to you, I was on your LinkedIn profile. I was reading through your your description. I love that the first line of your description is, I love strategy. I have always loved strategy ever since I was five years old. <laughs> What is it that you love so much about strategy? To me, strategy is is almost akin to 
having wisdom and having sort of discernment because to me strategy and again I I, I hark back a lot to, to what my parents often said and I remember my mum used to say like never be like afraid never let terror overcome you because then you'll never be able to find a way out so that was one thing my mum used to say but on the other side of that my dad my parents let me just preface this by the fact telling you that my parents were from Jamaica and went to Britain just after World War II as they were calling a lot of people over from the Commonwealth and the Caribbean countries and and from India, calling them over to the UK to help rebuild the country. So if you imagine, you know, during World War II, Britain was bombed, London especially, it was bombed to heck. And so obviously they had to, they lost a lot of soldiers, et cetera. And so they had to rebuild the country. So my parents, he did that call and, and went to Britain and thinking that when they came, that they would be welcomed with open arms, which they weren't. And instead, they were actually faced with a lot of racism and discrimination. And one of the things that they struggled with was finding accommodation to live. My dad actually arrived first. And one of the things that they would find when they're looking for accommodation is a lot of the the houses that had rooms for rent would basically have a, a notice in the window. And the notice would say, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, which basically meant don't knock on my door because I won't be renting to you if you were black, Irish or had a dog. And so in light of that, and that story I can tell on another day, but in light of that sort of uh, obvious sort of racism and other things that they faced, my dad actually sat us down as very young kids. And I was probably about five, four or five. And then I had my older sister and brothers and he would sit us down as kids and he would say to us, okay, so, and this we know today as scenario planning. But back then he would say to us, right, so you're on the bus, sitting upstairs on a double-decker bus. And there's someone behind you and they are shouting racist slurs. What are you going to do? And as each of us as kids would have to come up with some sort of scenario as to what we would do. Are you going to get up and go downstairs and sit downstairs on the bus to find safety? Are you going to say something to them? Are you going to figure out how many of them are there? Like, what is your way of getting out of these situations? And he would do this with us at least like once or twice a month uh, with some sort of scenario. And I think that's the way we sort of thought about strategy. And we would give him our answers and he'd say, "Mm, yeah, that's good. Or no, you know, that's not a good idea because you said that there were two of them and there's only one of you. So going over there and punching one of them in the face is probably not the best strategy at this stage, right? So so he would sort of talk us through the strategies that we came up with. So that's one reason that I love strategy is because you find so many different solutions. There's so many possibilities for solutions and then finding the right one. Mm. It's it's interesting you mentioned that about kind of that bit of, of history about immigrants coming over to the UK. I just finished, I think maybe it was last week, I just finished watching the last two installments of Steve McQueen's Small Act series. Oh my goodness. Okay, so that was actually, if you watched all of those, those were my life. So the first one about the mangrove. So yeah. I, actually grew up, I actually grew up in Notting Hill. Oh, wow. Um, and so that whole area, Labrick Grove, All Saints Road, I can tell you stories about that. Maybe another interview. Um, <laughs> um, All Saints Road. And that was where all the A-listers would come back in the day. So, you know, it wasn't unusual for me to, for example, so Bob Marley came to my house. We lived not far from there. We probably lived like two blocks away from All Saints Road. And so a lot of A-listers would go down to All Saints Road where the mangrove was to hang out because you get good food there, et cetera, et cetera. There's music, all that kind of stuff going on. And it was really the heart and soul of, of West London. 
And a lot of the time when, when a lot of these A-listers would come down because they're on tour, they would obviously miss that home cooking. And so my brothers would hang out down there. And so they would say to people like Bob Marley, oh, come to my house. You know, my mom's always got food. My mom's always got food cooking. So my brothers would bring Bob Marley or Marvin Gaye you know, and they would sit and have rice and peas and jerk chicken. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so and yeah. And so when, when I talk about that small axe was my life. Yeah, there's I remember all of those storylines meant something to me. That was history. That was my life. It was, inc- it was incredible. Yeah, it was so illuminating to watch all those stories and of course those those wonderful performances. I think the the one that was probably the biggest gut punch for me was the final one, education. Yeah. I guess the way that the the schools were really like harshly discriminating against black immigrant children. It just reminded me so much of me. I grew up in rural Alabama in Selma, Alabama, which people know from the civil rights movement here in the US. And it's so interesting, the parallels, like with Kingsley getting bussed to the other school. Like I got bussed to schools from s- about second grade through fifth grade for kind of a similar thing. They had thought that I was a gifted child. So they had these enrichment classes at other schools. And so I would go to my regular elementary school and get bussed to another school, a white school across town or in like the really more affluent, whiter part of town five days a week. It was just amazing seeing how that sort of system still perpetuates. I mean, back then, I mean, I think that probably, I think the time frame was that probably in the 70s or so, I think was for education. And for me, that was the 80s. So yeah, not too far off, but. Not too far. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that that whole, I mean, that whole, um, that whole episode about education. I mean, I can, I can attest to that. I mean, I wasn't bust anywhere, but definitely, you know, within the school system, you know, black children were not respected. And I've done some talks where I talk about some of the things that were said to us in the classroom. And people are absolutely flabbergasted that teachers would say this to you. And I remember one teacher saying to my friend who's also black, oh, if we'd known you were black, we would never put you in that school for white girls. I'm sorry, in that class for white girls, because my friend was exceptionally clever. But obviously, just by going by the name, they couldn't tell because she had a very English name. But you could tell that obviously, if you had a name that they thought, oh, that that name doesn't sound like a white person, we'll put them into this other class. But yeah, so that whole idea and that concept of respecting education simply wasn't there. The fact that I, at some point in my sort of education, probably the, the last couple of years, I decided, okay, it's time to really knuckle down because if I continue to let what they are doing within the classroom, if I continue to let that, that ruin my life or to direct the path that, that they want me to go down, I'm not going to get anywhere. So I had to rethink, and this is, I guess this is where strategy comes in. I had to really knuckle down to make sure that I passed my A and O levels so I could go onto, onto college. Mm. Even with, you know, what was going on in terms of discrimination and such, I'm curious, were design and and art and creativity sort of a part of the world that you grew up in? No, no, not at all. I mean, it depends. I would say creativity, yes, in that my mom was from an era where women knew how to, to sew and to knit and to do all those kind of amazing things. 
my dad was a, was an amazing illustrator. Not that he did illustration, but he could really like he could draw. I remember just sitting on his lap and saying, "Oh, daddy, you know, draw an elephant." And he would just like draw an elephant, and and it would look amazing. You'd be, I'm like, "How do you do that?" I don't have his creative talents when it comes to illustration, unfortunately. But not in the household, and and really, it was it wasn't considered a good career to go in. Well, it wasn't even considered a career to be honest with you, because when I was at school, that you'd go and see the careers teacher, and she would say have you decided if you're going to secretarial school or have you decided if you're going to become a nurse? And so those were the the two channels that you had. And so unless you, you know, unless you're like me and say, well, no, I don't want to do any of those things. I did like to draw and I did like to do things like coloring and painting. And I said to her, no, I want to do something creative. And she, she was really annoyed with me actually at this point. And so she, I remember, she, I remember her rummaging in her bag and she pulled out a leaflet and threw it at me across the table and said, go and have a look at that and come back and see me next week. And so I went home, looked at this leaflet and, um, and it was, it was for different courses, different creative courses, which I'd never heard of. And I was looking at these courses and, and I was looking through the, the prospectus that she gave me and there was photography and I'm like, Oh, I didn't know you could do that. That's, that's a thing. Like you could do that, but you had to be 19 to, to participate in this course. And at the time I was only 16 And I was looking at all these different creative courses and they all had like, you had to be 19, you had to be 18. And I was only 16 because that back then you left school at 16 in the UK. And so I came across this one course that would take you at 16. And I remember looking at, it said graphic design and typography. And then it said age, application age, 16. And I thought, okay, I'll do that one then. And that's actually how I got into graphic design. It was by sheer. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of the, not necessarily the luck of the draw, but it just happened to be the available program. It did. It did. And luckily I got in and it was interesting because, you know, we're, we're t- sort of talking about, you know, back in the day. But I remember going to that interview and even I was surprised that, that the person, the two people interviewing me were two working class males, white males. And I remember thinking, how did they get this job? Because back in the UK, when we talk about race, we have to remember that that class, class will out trump. Sorry, I'm not going to use that word. Class will out <laughs> race. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate class that. Will <laughs> any day of the week. So you can be black, but in a certain class, and that's okay, right? But if you're black and you are considered working class, then that's not okay, right? So your color becomes irrelevant if you match with the upper classes if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds a little bit, I guess, schizophrenic, but that's kind of like, that's basically how it is. And if you had a certain accent, you know, in the UK, there was no way you could become a teacher. Like if, if you had an accent that sounded a bit like this, do you know what I mean, mate? There's no way, like absolutely not. But that's how these teachers spoke. They were typically working class um, instructors. And I got into that course. Like, and I like to think it was, there was some sort of empathy there as well because if i had gone to probably any other uh, design school at that time i probably wouldn't have got in so i think that the the stars were aligned i think you might say on that and now was this this was at the london college of printing correct this was at the london college of printing yeah what was it like like what was your time there like i would imagine going into the program were you were there other black people in the program like what was what was it like for you no I was the only black person in the program. There was one black guy that came, and I think maybe in the second year, and he left. I don't know why. He didn't stay for very long, maybe the first term, I think, and then he left. But I was the only one. But, you know, you've got to remember that, you know, growing up, it really wasn't, 
it really wasn't an issue. Like if you were the only black person in a class or whatever, right? You just, it was, that's just the way it was. And so, you know, just kind of got on with it. But I, I loved it. Like I really loved it. And I think I, I really grew during that time. I learned so much because design was not something that was spoken about. It was never talked about at school. I just remember the very first day of college in art school there. And I remember after the first day, I remember sitting back in my chair and I thought, oh my God, someone is going to pay me to do this. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, it, was like, it was miles away from the world that I sort of grew up in, which was, you know, my parents working with their hands. And that's the way most people in our communities, you know, earned their money. They worked in a factory or they, you know, whatever they had to do. But here I was, I could make a living by using my, my brain, right? And creating, you know, these different artifacts. It, it was incredible. And I was just like, yes, this is for me. I love it. Nice. So at the time, while you're, you're there, you're learning about design and typography. Once you, you graduated and you sort of got out there in the world, what was like your first design job after you graduated? I got a job in a, in a design firm. And yeah, I, I, I loved that as well. It, it was great. I was working on some really interesting accounts, uh, large accounts. And yeah, it, it was just so amazing to me that you could do this as a living. I, I learned a lot. I was really interested in print as well. And so I would, you know, go to different printing companies and talk to the printers there and, and um, you know, look how they made plates and film and, and all that kind of stuff. Because I, I wanted to know the whole process. I was really interested in the entire process. And, um, and even at college, uh, it was the same thing as well. Back then, it was interesting because you they really taught you like all the tiny details. So for example, we did, we used to have a paper class. And so we would go down to the paper department at LCP and, you know, we would be learning about different paper stocks, you know, antique papers and bond papers, et cetera, et cetera, smooth and, you know, vellum and et cetera. And I remember the test at the end of the year, was at the end of the term, and it was, it was a sound test. It was a touch test. And so you would have to, the instructor would give you different papers. You would have to touch it. And then you'd have to flick it and hear the sound that the paper made so you could tell the weight of the paper. Yeah. And so you'd say, okay, this is a vellum. And you'd go, and you'd flick the edge of the paper and you'd say, okay, that is 80 GSM or whatever the, the, the weight was. And that's how you learned about paper. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I did that now. <laughs> I would imagine. I mean, well, of course now with, you know, there's so much technology, but yeah. wow, that's, that's really interesting. So I'm kind of trying to, to place this sort of in terms of years. So you're at London College of Art, you graduated. What's the time frame here? What are we thinking? Like, like 90s? Trying to Yeah, no, this was a, uh, well, I graduated in 1979. Okay, okay. Yeah. So that's when I graduated. And I don't know when people say, I mean, they look at me and they go, well, how, how, did, you, how did you do that? How did you do all these things? It's because we <laughs> left school, at, because we left school at 16. So mm -hmm. by the time you're 19, you've, you've graduated, right? Yeah which was a bit of a shock to me when I came to Canada because I didn't know. I, I remember seeing these kids in elementary school and I'm thinking, wow, these are really, these are really tall 11 year olds. Cause in England, <laughs> you leave school, you, in England, you left school at 11 and you went to high school. Right. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and I'm thinking these are really tall 11 year olds. And I remember saying this to one of the mothers there and she's like, no, they're like 13 and 14 years old. I'm like, what, what are they doing in elementary school? But anyway, so that was sort of 79. And then I ended up working in different, agencies and freelancing as well. And then one company that I was working for, I was working on this, I think it was a, a Colgate account. And the executive 
said to me one day, we were sitting down and I was going through the designs with him. And, and he said to me, hey, look, I've got this project that I'm working on, but I don't need the agency to do it for me. Like, do you do work on the side? And, and I was like, yeah, of course I do, which I hadn't actually done. But I did this project for him on the side. And it was a, it was a, um, a charity project, sort of like a save the children sort of charity type of project. So I did that work on the side. And, and then he had another job. And then he started referring his, his other friends to me who had these socially conscious projects that they were working on apart from their, their main jobs. And so pretty soon I had, I had quite a, a good clientele and I thought, okay, do I want to keep working for this idiot boss of mine or should I just leave and start my own business? Because I've got, I've got all this work now. And so I ended up just leaving and starting my own business, you know, out of my flat in London. And that's how I started my first business. Wow. Literally. Literally. Yeah. So left the, left the job one day and started my business the next. You know, I did the same thing with my studio. Day that I quit, I didn't even give like two weeks or anything. There were other extenuating circumstances, but by the time I was ready to go, I was ready to go. Like quit, started my studio the next day. So there you go. definitely applaud that. Design in the 80s. Talk to me about that because I know that around this time, we're starting to see the advent of technology, the personal computer. And then of course it sort of explodes in the nineties, but how did that change or did that change your practice in any sort of way? That changed it in a big way. And I remember walking down the Barbican and there was this machine in the window. I remember looking at it thinking, what the hell is that? And I have to bear in mind that you have to, and that was an Apple computer, but you have to bear in mind that the first one at art school, we actually did do computers, but it was a massive room full of these machines. And there was one little machine in the middle. And out of that machine came this little bit of ticker tape. And I remember thinking, you've got all these machines in this room. And this is the only thing it outputs is this little bit of tape, right, with little holes punched in it. So that was my idea of the computer. It was, you know, it, it was vast. And then I saw this machine thinking, what the hell is that? So we went inside and uh, and the guy said, oh, yeah, this is, this is the new Apple computer and this is what it does. And it was interesting because it was a time at which nobody really knew how to use it, number one. So you had to train yourself. Number two, the printing companies couldn't actually output from that. So you had to buy a printer, print it, and then it had to be, then that would have to be shot through the camera, right, to then get that into, onto the film and then onto the plate. Yeah, it wasn't as streamlined as it is now. But it, that did change because prior to that, everything was paste up. So, you know, you'd get your, either your letter set letters or you'd get your, your text uh, printed out from a type bureau. You'd cut it up and paste it up, et cetera. And then the whole advent of the computer came along and that, that basically changed everything. And then for us as a business, we started moving into more sort of magazine production and our studio became the development house for which was then IPC magazines, which I think is now like a Time Warner slash Time Media company. But we became the development house for a lot of the new magazines that were being published back then. So you definitely are getting the success in in London. You're making a name for yourself. What prompted the move out of the country to come to Canada? We had a huge recession, a very deep recession in the UK. And this was the late 80s into the early 90s. You know, clients weren't paying their bills. And we're talking big clients too. This is not just you know, a small, small organizations. Well, you were waiting, you know, maybe 120 days to get paid. 
it was just ridiculous. Printing companies that had been around for 300 years were closing their doors. It was a very bad recession. And we sort of limped along for maybe a couple of years and we had to get rid of our staff. We had to close some of us. We had uh, three studios. We had to close two of those, kept one. And then it came a point where we just couldn't carry on anymore the way we were, the way we were doing. Uh, We limped along for a couple of years. And then we decided time to give up. And we started looking around and someone mentioned that, you know, Canada was a really great place to bring up your kids. And so we put our paperwork in, we did our research, put our paperwork in and, and the rest as they say is history. Here we are. (laughs) And now when did you arrive in Canada? We arrived in 1993 in Canada. Okay. What was it like? Was it a big culture shock? It was. I mean, any, I mean, anywhere you go is is always, and you know, with, when you're new, it's always like learning how things work. And sometimes you you arrive and think, oh, it's going to be the same, but it, it isn't. And so, just learning new things. You know, our kids were sort of starting school, so figuring out what the school system was like. And even when they, you know, as they grew older and and they were graduating high school, and they're telling us about this sort of high school graduation, and they have to have a dress and suits and things. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is this? Like in England, you you leave school, that's it. Bye. (laughs) Just figuring out all these new things in terms of, you know, coming to a new country. And then, you know, when you come, you have to start again. And and this is something I share with my students as well, because we have a lot of international students. We have a lot of students here from different cultures. And they really do appreciate me sort of sharing my story about coming to the UK and I'm sorry, coming to the Canada and starting again. And I often say to them, it doesn't matter what you've done in your country. When you come to a new country, you have to you have to start again because like nobody's interested. Oh, you did that? Yeah, that's great. Do you have any experience in this country that you've come to? No? Okay. Well, you're going to have to start from the beginning. And although we had a great portfolio and we would show our portfolio around town here in Vancouver and people say, oh my God, your work's amazing. You know, oh, you work for this company? That's fantastic. But do you have any Canadian experience? You know, and we're like, have you seen who we work for? What do you mean do you have Canadian experience? Have you seen our portfolio? But it didn't matter. And so we sort of freelanced sort of here and there for the first couple of years. And then my husband and I were like, okay, so now we've got some Canadian experience. Let's start our own business. And so that's what we did. We started uh, in the basement suite. We live in the basement suite in East Vancouver. This is for the Canadians listening in East Vancouver. And yeah, we, we invested 250 bucks in that business and grew it from there. And a lot of the things that I learned in England in terms of, you know, strategy, in terms of sales, you know, that really came in handy in, in just starting to, to build the business here. So that's where CA Design Group was born. That's where CA Design Group was born. Yeah. Is the CA for Canada? No, people thought it was. No, it's actually for Chaz, who's my husband, and Angela, who's me. Oh, okay. We, we went through this whole <laughs> brainstorming session and we were like, yeah, you know, red pencil and this, that, and the other, and cut out of all these names. And in the end, we're like, ah, you know what? Let's just call it, let's just put our names yeah. on the business. Yeah. So new country, new business. This was uh, 96 when you started CA Design Group. Was the business climate different then? I would imagine so because it's a different country. And of course, you have the advent of technology. But what was sort of the business climate like back then for entrepreneurs? It was good. I mean, you could do things here in Canada that you couldn't do in the UK. So, for example, back then in the UK, you could not work from home. That you would like everyone would think you were a joke. So you couldn't do that. But in Canada, you could. And people accepted that. And people were like, okay, well, that's great. So we'll just work in our apartment. One of the things that we had to do is, obviously, you have to start building a name for yourself. So networking was a big part of that. 
So going out and doing that networking, some of the events that I wanted to go to, I couldn't actually afford to go. And so what I would do is I would find out where these events were. And so a lot of the good ones were at hotels. And so they would get in the ballrooms. And so I decided, okay, one day I want to go to this, to this event. I couldn't afford the ticket, but I thought, well, let me just go and sort of do a bit of a recce there and just kind of scope out what was what was happening. And so I went to this hotel and then I realized that the reception area where you go and you give your name, et cetera, was actually out in the open area where everyone was networking. And then the actual event would be in the ballroom. So I get there and I, I'm like, oh, okay, right. So I stood there and I waited for a group of people to come along. And then I walked in with them into the open area they went off to the registration table and I went off to just go and network with people right in, in the open area. And so I just spent 45 minutes just networking with people and chatting. And then when they announced that the, the event was starting and everyone was to go into the ballroom, I just said, oh, I've just got to phone the office um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll see you in there. But by this time, and I would just literally, literally come back home. But by this time, I'd already you know, done my networking. I'd collected all these business cards and then I could follow up with them, you know, that day or the next day. And then if they ever said to me, oh, like we didn't see you at the event, I'd just say, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I rang the office. I had to go back. There was an emergency, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I got to into some of these events that had very expensive price tags on them. And that's how I, I started, you know, doing my networking and, and building my business. Nice. You definitely have to find that's that's one thing I tell, you know, entrepreneurs that are starting out too. like you have to find your own way. I think, well, of course, now you can't do those kinds of events because of the pandemic. But certainly prior to that, you know, you just had to kind of find a way to finagle your way into certain spaces that you feel like you should be in, especially if it's, you know, for the purpose of getting your name out there and getting business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to be creative too. And you can't just do what everyone else is doing. I mean, the other thing I found was as I, I got really good at networking, I realized that, you know, on reflection, if I went to events that sounded really boring, so for example, if, if it was some sort of economic event, if I went to those events, I actually picked up better clients because these people were serious about business. Whereas if I went to an event where there was a big name speaker, no one was really interested because they just came to see the big name speaker. So I would just scope out these really boring events and I would say, okay, I'm going to that event about shoe leather or something, right? And I would go to that event and you'd be amazed. You talk to a client and maybe they're a shoe designer or they're, you know, they have, they have some sort of manufacturing company. So again, if anyone's listening that, you know, they're looking for maybe some different avenues to explore, look for really boring industries because there's lots of work there nobody's picking those industries up yet there's lots of work to be had there oh no i totally agree with that advice when i was starting out with my studio and the mistake that i made was going to a lot of events where other designers were there expecting to find work so like design meetups and things like that and the problem is those other people there are looking for work too like i'm not really fishing in a pond where i'm going to catch something if i'm trying to get work from other designers I went to a BNI meeting, which to me, I was like, oh, this is like watching paint dry. And I found so much work there because, I mean, granted, at the time when I had started out my studio, I was really doing more just like transactional sort of design work. Like you need a logo, you need an email newsletter or something, I can design that. And they're looking at it as a transaction and you're the person that can solve it and they've got the money to do it. So they're like, great, here you go. So I could go to those and find business and get a lot of good leads very easily because these were people that needed something. I'm not to say they didn't care about your portfolio or anything like that. They just wanted to get the work done. And you happen to be the person that's there to make it happen. 
Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this is a really valuable lesson, I think, for anyone who has their own business, is that you have to have what we call a mix. So the way that, that we developed our business was the mix was you find some good, solid client base. So for us, it was like government, either local, local government, provincial, federal government, right, as clients, because regardless of whoever's in power, they still need to produce material. So that was one tactic that we used. So we tried to get government clients, health, education. You know, these, these are some of the sort of fundamentals. It's almost like sort of building an investment portfolio. You, know, you have your fundamentals, your dairy queens and your what have you, things that regular folk buy. So you have your fundamentals. And then on top of that, you have different layers. And so you can have your top end clients, your blue chip clients. But in between that, you've also got clients that you'll do, you'll just do work for on pro bono charities, et cetera. And then you'll have clients, as you said, like picking up at BNI where they just need the job done. So you have those as well. And that mix is important because when something comes along shifting, some you know threat that comes along and shifts your business that you have no control over, you need that mix in order to survive. Because at the top end, they'll say, okay, a marketing budget, right, we're going to cut that marketing budget, forget it, there's no work happening. Then that's not going to trickle down to any sort of design work. The middle portion, you may still get some of that work, but even they, you know, be watching their budgets. But the government stuff and the sort of maybe education and the health, that will still be bubbling along. So having that mix in terms of your your client base is, is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. You you need to have that because also it, you know, aside from being able to kind of weather the storms like that, it also helps, at least for me, it helped free up a lot more time to do other things because I knew that I would have, say, for example, we did a lot of work with nonprofits. And so one of the main goals that I wanted to have was making sure that I was a line item on their annual report. So yeah. knowing that I'm on retainer and that I'm getting regular income from this this nonprofit or whatever frees me up to do other things through my studio that maybe aren't necessarily chasing down clients and doing more work, but doing other creative stuff under the studio as an imprint. Like, honestly, that's, that's really how I had the freedom to start revision path. <laughs> we had a few, right. a few great retainer clients and this was an idea that I really wanted to, to start with. And because I had the space to do that, I was able to do it under the studio and launch it. And here we are now. Wow. Yeah. And congratulations on that, by the way, as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, And I agree because what we were able to do very similar thing in that you have the high paying clients, but it allows you to work with nonprofits and do social change projects and really make a difference as well. Yeah, we mostly worked with, well, I actually, when I started out, I was working with a local politician. She was running for mayor at the time, but outside of that, she was the president of the nonprofit arm of one of the big trauma center hospitals here. So like we got to do a lot of work with like community clinics and, you know, it really kind of made me feel like a closer citizen of the city, right. knowing not just that my work was like being displayed on like a billboard or something like that, but like it's also pamphlets inside of community clinics that families are going to take home for more information and stuff like that. So knowing that, you know, my audience is just the people that are around me, like it's great. It's great. Yeah. That's something I teach my students as well, is it, you know, about value and the way different people value design and not everyone values design the same way. It might just be a jobbing designer kind of project, in which case, you know, where does that client place value? You know, they may place it very low. 
well, is that acceptable to you? Yes. Okay, we'll do the job. Or you have clients that value design highly and, and are going to pay for that. You can do that job too, right? And then you have people who don't value design at all, but need something doing. So understanding that and, and you know, not taking it personally, like, oh, they're insulting me, but only want to pay me. They only have this amount of budget and I normally charge this. Well, do you want to do the job or don't you? If you don't want to do it, that's fine. You know, everyone, you know, you have that choice. But but understanding that everyone has, and I call it the money barometer, whereby you know it this little dial is sort of moving, and everyone has a, a position where that dial is set. How did you calibrate your money barometer? My money barometer um, <laughs> is, is very flexible. In that, I actually started when I started my business in in the UK. We actually started off doing a lot of the, like I said, sort of social good work. And they didn't pay, it, it, you know, it wasn't huge amounts of money, but I really enjoyed that work. And for me, even today, when I, you know, I can look at some of the clients that I've worked with. So, you know, i work with, you know, um, you know, Disney and the BBC and you know, Channel 4. And I've worked with all these big companies. But the, when people say to me, what's the job that means the most to you? I meant, it you know, has meant the most to you. For me, it's the job, that I did with the African National Congress of the ANC and the anti-apartheid movement in the 80s, which was the Free Nelson Mandela campaign. And to me, that is still the best job. And I'm not talking in terms of the design. The design wasn't, maybe it wasn't, if we look back now, I'm sure the design wasn't that great. But just the, you know, the importance of that work, you know, meant so much to me that, yeah, that for me, that is, that is the best, probably one of the best projects that I've worked on. And now outside of the design work and the, well, really the strategy work that you do for, for Transform EXP, you're also a design educator. You mentioned at the top of the show, you've been a design educator now for about a dozen years. Has it mostly been at the, the British Columbia Institute of Technology? Well, I taught in the UK as well. So okay. I taught in the UK for a few years. And then in Canada here, I've spent yes, eight years at, at British Columbia Institute of Technology or BCIT, as it's also known. And then I most recently started this year at OCAD University in Toronto as a professor there and now as the um, strategic director for, sorry, the graduate program director for the strategic foresight master's program. Excellent. Do you get to work closely at all with uh, Dr. Dory Tunstall? I do. She's my boss. Oh, nice. <laughs> Tell Dory I said hello. I will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, this was I need to have her back on the show again. When I had her on the show, this was oh, my God, this was so long ago because she's like episode like 106 or 107. So this was years ago. She was teaching Australia. Yeah, she was in Australia. She was teaching oh, okay. at the University of Swinburne, I think. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I need to have her back because, of course, now since then, she is now teaching at OCAD and, and people know about a lot of the work that she's done since then. What does teaching do for you as a designer? Okay. One thing I love about teaching is I learn so much from my students and I often say to them, I'm going to learn as much from you as you are from me. That's number one. It never ceases to amaze me that even the number of years I've been teaching that I've never had a project that looks exactly the same. Like, you know, you, you, you give out the brief for the project and every single student comes up with something completely different. And that, I, I just find that incredible. But also the fact that, you know, you, as you see the progress of their work, you know, when they, they're doing their research and then they're, you know, thumbnail sketching and, you know, they're, then they're sort of pushing further and doing their rough ideas, et cetera, and developing that concept. 
is seeing that, you know, that the light bulb goes on or the penny drops and pow, you know, it just, these ideas just become amazing. And that's what I love about design is because, and, and to sort of say teaching, is because there's always something new. It's, it's never the same. It's never the same. What do you think is probably one of the biggest changes that you've seen in students over the years since you started teaching? I would say an attachment to the cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I've done now is I've actually, well, before COVID, but um, so before COVID, you know, obviously students have their cell phones and you try and, and discourage that. But then I, I thought, well, let me, let me see, how can I use that? How can I use the cell phone? This thing that they're so attached to, how can I use that in the classroom? And so sometimes that what I'll do is I will do sort of spot research. So pick a topic and I'll say, okay, get your phones out. And I'm like, oh my God, what? Get our phones out? Are, you, are you serious? I'm like, yes, get your phones out. Okay, so we're going to do a brainstorm on, I don't know, apples or something like that. And so they'll start sort of researching it and going on their phones and that. So I'm really looking for ways in which you can utilize this tool that they have and make it a fun part of, of the learning process. I think that would be interesting if I'm in a class and the teacher actually tells me to, to pull my phone out. Yeah. Because yeah. usually I would think it'd be the opposite. Like, exactly. it's a distraction. Yeah. That's right. What else? And it's interesting. I actually use your program as well, the podcast. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Well, we're talking about, we were talking about Dean Dory just now. And one of the things that Dean Dory does is this whole idea about decolonization and decolonizing the way that design is taught. And so one of the things that I do is using revision path in the classroom. So sit and listen to one of the podcasts and then use it as discussion. And what I'm going to start doing is then getting students to do research on the designers that you interview. So that's going to be the second part of it. But, you know, in terms of the discussion part of it, that has been really interesting because students just suddenly realize, oh, my God, there's all these black designers. And to be sure, in my classes, there aren't that many black students, either at BCIT or at, at OCAD. And there may be two or three, maybe in, in, in a, an average classroom. But it's not just for the black students for the other students in the classroom as well to realize, oh, wow, you go into a refrigerant path and you've got, you have over what, 300 and odd designers that you've interviewed. Yeah. And I, and I usually scroll through that very first page, right? Where it's got all the photographs, scroll it, scroll it, scroll it. <laughs> and now I'm going to be the first one up. So this is going to be good. So I'm going <laughs> to so scroll through and I say, these are all the graphic designers from this podcast that have been interviewed. And they are shocked. They are shocked. Wow. Number one, nobody's talking about it. And and obviously they don't see it. But, you know, that's definitely something in terms of when you're talking about decolonization, you have to educate. It's not just for us to, you know, to do that work. You know, other students from other races also have to do that work as well. And part of that is educating themselves. I mean, I'm shocked that (laughs) you're using revision path in the classroom. That is blowing my mind right now. Wow. Yeah, because you had I had one student. He loved trainers, uh, basketball shoes, you know, the running shoes, et cetera. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I, I, I would just love to design these. And I thought, hold on a minute. Anthony Harrison. Anthony, Anthony Harrison. Anthony yeah. Harrison. I thought, okay, let me get that podcast and let's play that in the classroom. Wow. Yeah. Right? <laughs> because this kid had no idea that you could actually do this as a job. And I'm like, yes. And this guy is doing it. Right. And it's a black guy too. Yeah. So your program has been great for that. But I've been using it primarily as discussion. And we're talking about not just the designers themselves, but the work that they're doing as well. And then the students can go off and look at the various websites 
for each of these designers. And so now I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to push that further and we're going to actually start doing projects where they are going to research a designer from the podcast. Wow. Yeah. I, I am, I'm speechless. <laughs> I, I, I kind of have tears in my eyes a little bit too. I, I, and I mean, I say that because, you know, I do honestly revision path out of a labor of love, you know, just to kind of give a little, little bit of history behind why I started it back in 2006, I created this event called the Black Weblog Awards that showcased black bloggers and video bloggers and, and podcast, even there were podcasters back then, but black designers weren't really getting any sort of notoriety or any kind of recognition by the industry. I mean, I was a designer working at the time. I was working at AT AT&T. I had friends of mine in New York and in LA and in other cities that I knew were doing great work, but nobody was talking about the work. Like any of the design magazines or publications, you would read them and there would be no black people at all. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to do something back then, but I just didn't have the, the space. I was working 40 hours a week. I was in graduate school and I was doing the Black Weblog Awards. So I just didn't have the time. It wasn't until 2013, which by that point, I started my studio at uh, near the end of 2008. I had been doing the studio now for five years and I was like, okay, I'm at a good stable point. Now I'm going to start doing this. And that was really when I honestly was just doing a lot of, well, it's still this way, honestly, even, you know, almost eight years later, a lot of cold outreach, just emailing people like, Hey, I'm Maurice. I do a podcast. I would love to talk to you. Would you be interested in that? And in those early days, it was rough trying to get people to come on because no one had ever heard of what I was trying to do. And granted, I'm not the first to do something like this. I mean, there's other organizations and and initiatives that predate me by decades. So like, I know I'm not the first to try this, but people eventually started kind of opening up to me. And then I would, I got the attention of AIGA here in the States. And I was getting the attention of companies that were like, Oh, you're interviewing these people. We might like to hire these people. And so it's amazing how, as I've continued to do the podcast, how it's become more of a resource but I, I saw initially it was just kind of being a resource for capitalism, honestly. Like companies would <laughs> want to advertise on the show. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And then they sort of like how you say you go to the archive page and scroll down. They're looking at it almost like a like a Facebook, not like the social network Facebook, but like a Facebook of sorts. Like, oh, this one is good. This one is good. And I'm like, this feels a little off. Like it, it almost feels like a... And I might be stretching the metaphor here and I could be completely off, but it, it sort of almost felt like a, I don't know, like they were like purchasing people in a way. Like, am I contributing to this by interviewing these people and showcasing them? Like, in a way, it's setting them up for success because I, I would say probably, I don't know, maybe one out of every 15 or 20 people that are on the show end up getting recruited by like some larger entity that's heard of them through the show, which I think is great. That's but it's like, that's not why I'm having them on the show. Like I'm having right. them on the show to share their stories and to let people know this is the work that they do. And if companies get something from that, I think that's great. That's not my primary goal. It wasn't until maybe about two years ago when I really thought about wanting to have Revision Path being seen in, in an educational aspect. 
Right. Because, like, I, especially doing things with AIGA, like, I've been in rooms with, you know, you name the top designers, Michael Beirut, Debbie Millman, Polisher, whomever. Like, I've been in the rooms with these people and been the only black person or one of a few black people. I've gone to design museums and design bookstores. And I'm like, we're still not in these other places. You know, when you pull back and look at the entirety of design history, like we're still just a couple of like flies in the buttermilk to to kind of use Archie Boston's way of describing yeah. it. And so I really wanted to see how could Revision Path be utilized in some sort of an educational, you know, sort of way, like almost as like an archival kind of way. And I'm fortunate now that, you know, a portion of the episodes are a part of the Smithsonian for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. That was like yeah, a that's f- amazing. That was a four-year process <laughs> to make wow. that happen. And they used a selection of 11 episodes from the archives, which is great. But I also started hearing that schools were using it, which is sort of like, to me, that's the goal, that the next generation of designers is able to learn from this podcast. Because the other aspect of it is that the format may limit sort of its reach, if that makes any sense. Podcasting is in vogue now. Will it be in vogue 10 years from now? I don't know. 20 years from now? I don't know. And I don't want these conversations to be lost to the annals of time because of, you know, a file format. You know what I mean? Yeah. Technology Um, Right. And so I know that, you know, with a lot of digital work, it's very ephemeral. Things get overwritten. They get saved over, et cetera. So I'm glad that part of it is in, in some sort of archive, but the fact that it's being taught as sort of part of a curriculum to me says that the work continues to live on through other people, because then it's really about the discovery aspect of who these people are and who their what their careers are, what their lives are, and it adds to the history. And so, like yeah. when you're talking about decolonizing design, to me, having revision path being taught in schools in that way is like one of my ultimate goals for doing all of this. Yeah. And and I've done a couple of talks where I've I've mentioned the fact that, you know, I've used revision path and, you know, there are educators, you know, in the audience and, you know, they just type in the comments, oh, you know, I've never heard of this podcast. So it's definitely getting out there. And I hope other people will use it in the same way. And, and like you said, you know, carry this on forward into other forms of education. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, we were talking about Dr. Dory, that's really been, uh, a huge focus of her work has been around decolonizing design. How do you think we can begin decolonizing design in education? I've actually just taught my first, finished my first semester in actually doing that. So decolonizing design in advertising. One of the issues that happens when you have a design class or an advertising class is when you go and see the, the final show, everything tends to look the same. And so what we did for this decolonizing advertising class is bring in things like W.E.B. Du Bois and his, his work. We looked at Beyonce and one of the latest videos that she did that she choreographed and directed. And I forget the, the, the name escapes me, um, but it's, it's an amazing piece of sort of creative work that was done there. So bringing in different aspects of creativity and then also talking about you know, what does decolonization mean? So here in Canada, we have what we call the land acknowledgement. And so that is is given out 
in terms of talking about the the native people of the indigenous people of, of Canada, and we acknowledge that we live on on their land. And so discussing that as a beginning to, okay, so we live on their land. So what does this mean? What does this mean for me as an immigrant to to be here? What does it mean to you as a student whose parents may be first generation or you may be first generation? What does that mean to you? And so getting people to understand that you have to start from a place of some sort of grounding and some sort of humility and start your work from there because you have to look at the history in terms of colonialism as to what has happened you know, to the people here in Canada, to myself as a, as a black woman as well. So what colonization has meant and also to the white populations. What does that mean to you as a white person? What does colonization mean? And, and talking about these things in a classroom, that's really unheard of. And especially in a creative class as well. I generally talk about how, you know, history isn't our fault. And this is a, a quote I heard from a decolonized and indigenization speaker named Nikki Sanchez here in Vancouver. And she talks about how, you know, history isn't our fault, but it is our responsibility. Okay, so what happened in the past isn't our fault. We didn't do it. And the white kids in my class, they didn't do it. But it is our responsibility to rectify what has been done. This is one way that we can do it. We can discuss black designers on revision path. We can talk about the land and the history of people within Canada. We can look at indigenous ways of knowing. And so one of the things that we do is we get students to look at impact mapping, get them to look at holistic, you know, indigenous principles and, and look at their work in that light. So they may develop a concept and then we say, okay, let's look at that concept. And if we were to overlay your concept with marginalized groups, who does that impact? How does that impact your concept? How does that impact people with disabilities? How does your concept impact people from black communities? How does your concept impact maybe the LGBTQ community? What you're trying to do is you're trying to shift people's thinking. And so if all we do is to feed people the same design history all the time and not look at it in terms of where we are today, we look at it historically, discuss what colonialism meant. If we don't break that cycle, then we're just going to perpetuate the same thing. And in, in 10, 20 years time, we're still going to pick up these books and go, oh, there's no black people in here. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say that because I still will get that different agencies will will reach out to me and show me just sort of like the bare minimum of what they're doing to reach out to. Actually, I, I think I might have told this story on the podcast before how there's a series on Netflix called Abstract. Oh, right. Yes. Um, where they, you know, sort of profile, they do like these sort of mini documentaries on designers. And I remember the first season they had Ralph Giles, who's a, a automotive designer for, I think, Chrysler. Mm. I think Chrysler, but automotive designer in Detroit. And at work at my old job, we were looking at some potential design houses to work with for a project that we were doing. And one of the design projects just happened to be one of the, well, one of the design houses happened to be the same one that put abstract together. And so this was right before season two was about to come out. And I remember I was talking to one of the producers there and they sort of like said, Oh, revision path. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've heard of that. You know, it sort of was, was a bit of a, an inspiration for what we were trying to do. By the way, for this season coming up, we have two black designers and I'm like, <laughs> wow, really? That's something that, you know, it's Ruth Carter and, uh, and Ian Spalter from Instagram. I was like, really? Wow. That's, 
something. Like, I don't know if they thought I was supposed to do cartwheels over that, but like, <laughs> okay, that's great to know. But, but yeah, like this has to be sort of a continued sustained effort. So like the fact that, you know, for example, you're teaching revision path in schools means that at least now this next generation can move forward with the knowledge of knowing that black designers are out there rather than sort of discovering them in some later time in life when it doesn't really, I won't say it doesn't really matter, but like they are aware of the knowledge at the time when they're receiving it in school, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, just changing the way that they think, because it was interesting at the end of that particular semester, the one just gone, the non-BIPOC designers, and when I say BIPOC, I mean, black, indigenous people of color, the non-BIPOC designers, they talked about how enriching it was, that course was. And it was the first time that they'd ever been challenged to look at their work in terms of indigenous principles, you know, things like spirituality. Well, what does that have to do with design? Well, it has a lot to do with design because we do comparisons, for example, between how would you normally approach your work? And then, like I said, how would you approach it if you were, you know, looking at through an indigenous lens or a marginalized lens? How does that reshape the way you think? And the way that they then reorientated their projects was quite phenomenal because and they discovered new things. And so they found that really enriching. Mm. Earlier in 2020, are you familiar with uh, the designer Saki Mafundikwa? I am. I'm, tr- I'm trying to get his book. So if anyone has a copy of that book, I don't want to pay $800 for that book on Amazon. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that exact same listing. I- yeah. I've managed to read the book because it's in it's in one of the research libraries down here. Really impressive book. Smaller than I thought it would be. And that's not to, that's not a, a dig or anything, but I wasn't sure kind of what the book would be, you know, given what I've seen the price of it would be. But I know that it's no longer in print, which is why it's so expensive. You know, there's just so few editions out there. But he did an interview with AIGA Design, and he was talking about uh, the school that he started in his home country of Zimbabwe, in Harare, called the Zimbabwe Institute of Digital Arts. And he's been doing that now for about 20 years, I think, probably a little bit over 20 years. And one of the the main sticking points of this interview was about decolonizing design and how he sort of took, kind of took umbrage with the term, because to him, he was saying something along the lines of, you know, if you want to decolonize design, the people that are saying that have no idea what it means to be colonized. And I don't know if that was like a African versus African-American dig or African versus American dig. I don't know if that's what that was about. But part of what he was also saying is, well, what are they decolonizing to? Like, what's on the other side of that, I suppose? Right. And I I sort of have to sit with that question for a little bit because I I see where he's coming from. And certainly that is, is also coming from just lived experience. But I think what, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when I think of decolonizing design, I'm thinking just sort of, you know, when, when old film cameras have the, the shutter, like you can have a very right. like tight aperture. That tight aperture, at least for design, tends to only be on European design, particularly like Swiss design or, or Dutch or German or something like that. And so to me, when I think of decolonizing design, it's just opening the aperture to include more cultures and what their designs might be. Like, for example, I, I spoke at a company wanted me to speak on a panel to them, to their design team earlier in 2020. And they were like, oh, well, you know, like, where do we start? 
Like, you know, I, I learned the Bauhaus style or whatever in design school. Like, where do we start? And I think I was just saying that, you know, Africa has like over 50 countries. Like, pick a country and start there. Like, a, a lot of it, I feel like, just has to be sort of self-guided research. And I don't know if folks are looking for a, a book or a, a typed out curriculum, you know. What do you think about that? Well, you know, and it's interesting because I've I've sat on many panels and and I've done talks and and I often say it's not rocket science. There's Google. Get on Google and type in there, and you're going to find. If you're looking, you're going to find it. So, so just to to come back to the point about the whole point about um you know decolonization, you're quite right, and I think it's actually a, a mix of things. So it is opening that that aperture, and as we're doing in the classroom right now, opening up the aperture and getting people to realize, oh my, they do it. There are a vast array of designers of you know different ethnicities and black designers, but also within the education of design itself is looking at those educators and getting them to realize that there needs to be a shift in the, what they're teaching. So they need to educate themselves as well. Be looking at revision path, be Googling, you know, designers in Africa or designers in Ghana or whatever that happens to be. They are there. You can find them and bringing them into the classroom. And even if you're just showing their work, even if you're just going to their website and showing their work and discussing it in the classroom, that is decolonizing the whole concept of design. But also within institutions themselves is being able to do that and looking at what are the barriers, for example, are there barriers to potential BIPOC students coming into the institution? What does that look like? What does your interview process look like, et cetera, et cetera? There's quite a few areas to that. So I'm not quite sure if that answered your question. I'm not sure I've, I've missed a piece there. No, no, no. I, I think okay. it is. I, I guess it's, you know, sort of the the question of like, what are we decolonizing to? And I don't know if there is, you know, to sort of what Saki is sort of asking. I don't know if there is a specific sort of arrival point for what that looks like yet. Yeah. And what we're decolonizing to is just to open up the eyes and the ears and the visuals. Like, let's open up. Like the aperture, as you said, I, I totally agree with you, is opening up the aperture. Yeah. What would you say is the best thing about the work that you do? Well, for me, especially within teaching, it, it is opening up those eyes, especially for the next generation of designers. One of the other things for me is just being able to you know, perhaps develop new strategies, looking at expanding what I do in terms of using my creativity to the community so you know either to my local community or or to black community using the skills that i have to you know bring something to those communities and help help the communities and one of my biggest loves is actually working with with the youth in our communities as well back in the uk one of the things that i did was in my studio was to do in-house training i had a, a black youth training scheme for specifically young black men because for me, they are one of the groups that is forgotten, not thought about, can be dismissed, can be victimized, and nobody really cares. No one in authority, any, with any authority cares anyway. They are, to me, the most feared, yet they are the most vulnerable in society. And nobody's picking up on that. And I think that's that's a sad thing, because we've seen this year the killings of young black men. We've seen you know, in years gone by, those things still being perpetuated. We've seen the, you know, in, within the 
the justice system, how they are completely victimized. And it's a system that is built basically to, you know, have this sort of constant feeding of black men that are just sort of thrown into into the, the justice system. And so to me, that's definitely where I sort of want to put my talents, my skills in the years to come as well. And so I had this black youth training scheme, specifically, like I said, for young black males to train them in the skills of graphic design, because these are kids that were not treated well at school, would not do well within an art school setting because, you know, they just won't and it's not there for them. And so by training these young guys and some of them, yeah, they, you know, the, some of them are brushed with the law and that kind of thing, but Hey, you know, that's life, right? But being able to train them and then give them a skill and then get them into the industry and take them on a different path. That to me might means more than anything that I could possibly do in my life to be able to do that, right? To take what I've learned from this society that has not been built for me, but I've been lucky and I've had certain privileges and especially as, as a black woman as well. I know that I can do things as a black woman that a young black man could not do. And I recognize that. And I think, you know, it's for all of us to support our young black men, especially now as we go into 2021 and now things are starting to, you know, we've got things like revision path and, and there are you know other things happening in the world that, you know, we're looking at technologies and, you know, where these could actually go. To me, this is where young black people need to be focused on. We need to be in there. We need to be doing the whole, that digital stuff because this whole thing about digital and, uh, you know, where this is going to go, we need to be in there. Otherwise we're going to get left behind. So anything I can do to push that and to give kids the opportunity to get into that, I'm going to do that. When you sort of look back at your career from just starting out with design as as a young woman in London to now, do you feel creatively satisfied? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. I think my focus has changed. I think my focus has changed in that I'm now concentrating on the, on the education piece, because I think that's a, a huge piece in terms of the future. But yeah, I, I definitely feel creatively satisfied, and I feel strategically satisfied as well. More importantly, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what, what kind of work do you want to do? I think what I just said just now, just in terms of, you know, working with communities and especially working with, you know, young black youth. I think that's definitely where I'm going. I'm probably going to come back and, and, and look at how I use the position that I've got. So in terms of, you know, my business my keynote speaking, my positions in education, how I can use that to help our communities. So that's, that's where I, I see myself. Just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online? Right. Well, you can go to my website, which is transformexp.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, just search Angela Baines. You'll find me there. And then on Instagram, if you type in uh, Angela underscore Baines, that's B-A-I-N-S underscore UK, you'll find me on Instagram. Sounds good. Well, Angela Baines, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show, for not just, you know, sharing your story, but also really sharing the passion behind the work that you do, particularly around education and the youth, you know, like you said, it is very important now, especially in this very uncertain time that we have to make sure that we 
not only just stay vigilant, but also stay educated about where we're from so we can know where we're going. And I think that you are definitely doing that, not just through the strategy work through your firm, but also through teaching the next generation of designers. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Maurice. And uh, happy new year to everyone. Big, big thanks to Angela Baines. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Angela and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this interview? What do you think about Revision Path overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Or even better, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, of course. (laughs) Let the world know about the show. It really helps us grow and it helps us reach even more people around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.